the inaugural issue of the New Thinking Aloud magazine was just released on March 1st. You can download a free PDF copy from the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website. That's newthinkingaloud.org. You can even order a printed copy from mta-magazine.magcloud.com. Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is uncanny events, and my guest is Ray Stanford. In fact, this is my fourth interview with Ray Stanford, so if you haven't watched any of the earlier interviews, I'm going to link right now to our first interview with him. It's titled The Blue Apple, and it'll be a great introduction to this video. Ray has had an amazing career. Uh, he has uh, made some incredible contributions to the field of paleontology. He's been a UFO researcher. And in addition, uh, he had a former career as a trance channel and psychic reader. He's the author of many books, including Fatima Prophecy and Socorro Saucer. He's also been featured on the cover of the Washington Post Sunday Magazine as the Amazing Dino Man. Ray lives on the East Coast. I went to visit him in his home to conduct this interview, and now I'll switch over to the video from our conversation. This is an event that occurred very early on in, in your life, before your first marriage, if, if I recall correctly. Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, I was just getting involved and engaged with it, my first wife mm -hmm. uh, in 1969, and uh, uh, in July of 1969. Well, the way things happened was uh, what I thought would be an ordinary Saturday morning. I uh, I awakened, and I felt a, a strange compulsion to do something that, that didn't seem rational, because... Uh, uh, the compulsion was to, I, li I was living, of course, in San Antonio, to call a uh, physics professor at the University of Texas, Dr. Eugene Vasily Arvash, whom I had not seen in well, nearly two years uh, when I had lived in Austin. And uh, I had met him uh, in, a, in a medical group and, uh, and uh, talked to him about my interest in UFOs, unidentified aerial objects, and uh, and he was very open-minded. I was pleased to see a, a college professor of physics open-minded on this subject, and uh, uh, so I, I didn't happen to mention that to him. But that was nearly approximately two years before what I'm going to describe happened that Saturday morning, and it really, uh, uh, I mean, I just woke up uh, in in San Antonio, and I had a deep interior intense feeling that I had to call Dr. Ives, whom I hadn't even seen in, in about two years. And, um, but I, I figured I wanted to, uh, wanted to invite my girlfriend at the time, who became my wife, uh, Susan, uh, to, uh, 
to go to Austin with me, and I wanted to add a little incentive, so I called her up and I said, hey, how would you like to go canoeing out on, uh, uh, there's a place there where you could rent canoes and, and go up canoeing. I forget the name of the little place. And uh, and then we were going over to Austin. I, I just feel like I've got to call a, a physics professor that I haven't seen in a couple of years, but it's just one of these things. I've got to call him. So uh, we, uh, I picked her up and we went uh, canoeing. And then we uh, drove on to Austin, and it was getting uh, lunchtime, and we were getting hungry. And so we decided to go to the Luby's Cafeteria there in Austin, where I would call Dr. Ivish. So we went there, and I went to the payphone out front, and uh, didn't have a personal phone in those days. And uh, I, and I called Dr. Ivish's number, and his wife, Edna, answered. And she said, I said, Hi, uh, this is, is Ray Stanford. Uh, I'm not sure you remember me, but you probably remember me from around two years ago when I was here in Austin and attending the same study group as, as you and, uh, and, uh, Jean were doing. And she said, she said, Ray, this is amazing that you called this morning. And I said, why is it amazing? And she said, well, because in this morning's paper, the Austin American Statesman, uh, there's an article about a strange object that fell at, at hypersonic speed and, and made a crater in a backyard of a, of a man in San Antonio. And he was scientifically curious. And so he took it over to the Department of Economic Geology here at UT and, uh, and, and, uh, to have it take a look at. He said, but Gene wants to talk to you about it. He knows more about it. And uh, so he got on the phone. He said, right. I wish I could understand why you call me because I'd said, oh my gosh, if there were just some way I could contact Ray Stanford to tell him about this, I know he's going to be interested. And indeed, so uh, he was right. So he came over to the cafeteria and brought me the clipping, which you will see, which uh, we'll be showing. And it was uh, from that very morning and uh, uh, in August and uh, uh, of 1969. And so uh, uh I was just thrilled to have it, and I, I could hardly wait to try to get in contact with with uh, uh, the the professor at the University of Texas that was, that was involved in, in this. And actually, there was a photograph in the article of the American statement that showed two professors at the University of Texas uh, in that uh, department, and they, they were both curious. And and uh, so when I I, I finally uh, contacted uh, the uh, the scientist involved. I called him, and uh, I guess I, I, it was a Saturday. I think I waited till Monday because uh, to call him at the university, and uh, and I, I said I'm really fascinated by this. Uh, could I come over and talk to you about it? What see how you feel about it? So on and so forth. I don't know what analysis you might or might not have done, but uh, would be. I mean, he said sure, sure, and so I, I came over there, and they were extremely gracious and nice, and. Uh, uh, even though obviously I'm not a meteoriticist, I'm not an expert in, in meteorite. Well, I'm more now because my wife and I have gotten a big time in collecting them and studying them. But uh, I wasn't then very much aware of uh, where I was interested. That I was in, and uh, uh, he said that this this is also very strange because it's not a meteorite, but clearly it fell and and shows ablation features from passing through the atmosphere and and melt occurring. From passing through the atmosphere, and and what's more, 
it, it knocked a man uh, uh, in his yard, it fell, it was hanging out clothes across the yard, he grabbed onto another clothesline to keep himself from being thrown into the ground by the shockwave. And, uh, and he just, he said he describes a big crater around it, which wouldn't be made by the object. The object was only about so big, but, uh, it would be the hypersonic shockwave compression in front of it that excavated the crater. And, uh, so he said, you know, we, we can't imagine what this is. It is, it's just very strange. And it, it is definitely is not, uh, not a meteorite in any sense of anything we've ever seen on in space, but it, it definitely, well, at, at hypersonic speed. So I'm sure that he'd feel very okay if, if you contacted the man in the Georgia it. And, and, uh, it, uh, uh, by that time, I think he, he already had it back in his possession. But, uh, the second time when I visited, uh, the professor involved, he said, by the way, something, uh, odd happened. He said that we didn't know this till after the thing had been taken, but where it had set here in the metal desk drawer, but he said, it had, out of matrix of this, it had broken, uh, due to various factors, uh, not only hitting the ground, but, uh, uh, uh maybe, well, no, I don't think he, uh, what happened when it fell, pieces of it flew off. And this material is primarily glass, and glass, and, and is translucent to transparent glass, and it absorbs heat readily. So when it hit, it is, it was white hot. And, um, uh, the thing is, it, um, but when it hit, hot little pieces of it broke off and flew over and outside the crater. It hit that hard uh, into the dry grass and the grass started burning. So T.H. Tanner, the man in whose yard it fell, uh, ran, went around front and, and got the hose, which, uh, and connected back to the water and, uh, and, uh, squirted the, uh, the grass to cut the grass up and, uh, uh, but fortunately, the, the engineer who lived behind uh, Tanner, uh, who was scientifically minded, saw that these pieces that fell off, that, that Tanner wasn't paying any attention to these little pieces, and so he collected them, and he gave them all to me. He said, since you're investigating it, he said, uh, I think you'd like to have them, which I'm deeply appreciative, and, and, uh, and of course, uh, I, I, I already showed you some of them. And uh, But what I'm going to uh, mention is... Uh, With the fact that your girlfriend's father knew Mr. Tanner. As it turns out, Tanner uh, owned a company that was commercial air conditioning outfit. It, it, it builds the big systems that go in tops of houses, many buildings, and uh, commercial air conditioning. And uh, uh, it so happens that the girl that I suddenly married, who went to San Antonio with me, her father uh, owned an identical company. It's commercial air conditioning. And when I got over there and was telling him and his wife, and uh, Susan already knew about it, uh, about this, he said, well, let me tell you something. You can believe this man. He said, he's the most honest businessman that I know of in San Antonio. He said, you know, as I've told you, we're in the same business. He said, and I've known him to lose contract after contract because of his honesty. I'm not what, I don't know what I was saying about my, my future stepfather, but, uh, <laughs> but saying, I guess he was less honest than T.H. Tanner, but he was being honest about that. And, uh, he said, really, he said, I, you don't know how many times, I mean, I've beat him out of a contract because of my honesty and, uh, because of rather his, uh, his honesty. 
And uh, uh, he said, uh, really, he said, this man, he said, I would trust him with anything he told me because he's that, that good a man. And uh, so that impressed me. And, and I have no doubt about that, having met and talked with him and Tanner and, and his wife, that, uh, that indeed they're really good people. And he was just as honest as he could be. Anyway, I interviewed uh, the next door neighbors. They had uh, had been inside their house, but they heard the the sonic boom, and they came down, and uh, they ran outside. And here is this crater that hadn't been there a little while before, and they were outside. And here is this object about this size, glowing white hot, in the in the middle of the crater. And uh, and Tanner's frantic ran around cutting off the stopping the flame, the burn in the grass of his yard, because it was a, it was a summer, this was after all, uh, July, uh, uh, July 28th, and it, it had been very dry and hot there, and he had a, his grass was burning in his yard, so he was putting it out, uh, and this is in Barman. Uh, he had squirted down, to some extent, the area around the crater, and a lot of the water had drained into the six and a half, eight or seven foot crater, and, uh, he was sitting there. He said it was just after 10 o'clock tonight. He, he was getting ready to go to bed. This had fallen in daylight. But, uh, oh, and what I didn't mention, it, when it fell, he had been out in the backyard hanging out clothes on a clothesline. And when it fell, the shockwave hit him and knocked him across the yard. He managed to reach up and hit the last clothesline he managed to grab, or he said he would have been bone flat in, in his face. But at that point, he said he was back in the house and was just getting ready to, to go to bed, and it was just after 10 o'clock in the night now, and he looked out there, he had a, a, a back porch light that turned on, and it was on, and you could see see the crater, and the whole area of the thing. The thing was still sitting in the crater. I mean, he didn't even, yeah, of course, it had been quite hot. When he looked out at, at after 10 o'clock, this thing, this glass object was so hot, that steam from the, the water that had drained from around the grass in the yard that he had turned off the fire had gotten near it, and steam was coming up around it from the water, from radiation, all those hours after the fall. And this is amazing, and, and, but it's, it's very surprising, not surprising, because yeah. even ordinary glass, I mean, if you, if you heat it up to white hot, where it's been to, where the surface has been melting in, in the time it's passing through the atmosphere, ablating, uh, you're going to, and you can set it there, it'll radiate heat for a long, long time. So you're talking about heat radiation, not radioactivity. Oh, no, not radioactivity, just plain thermal radiation. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 it absorbed. And, of course, there's ample, as you see on the surface of this, you see the melts and the flows. As, as this thing passes through the atmosphere, it's going to be tilting and moving, and yet the surface is liquid. The surface part, it's gotten so hot, white hot, that the outer part of it is actually uh, liquid glass. And you can see all over the surface where the various pressures, and as it turns its waves, the glass flowed different ways and, and places. And uh, uh, under, of course, there's tremendous pressure. It's under, uh, I mean, it's hypersonic speed. When you fall from, at cosmic velocity, I mean, you're, 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 you're not just hypersonic. I mean, you're hypersonic. And it's just really heating things up. Meteorites all have a fusion crust on them when they fall off. But they're less likely to melt than this because this glass is just absorbing heat. It's drinking in heat, so to speak. And, uh, and then it's also re-radiating it. 
uh, and that surface is of course going to be the hottest area. <clears throat> but that that's that was basically uh, what I was forgetting and remembering it was how the steam was coming up after ten o'clock at night. That is just a gauge to show mm-hmm. you how incredibly hot this was. And as we also have, as as you've seen, we have the clouds that had been knocked up by the hypersonic shockwave, the ones that were near the object, it was so hot that across the air, which is a pretty good insulator, you, you saw the surface of the dirt, the clouds, yeah. turn to glass. I mm-hmm. mean, there's beads of glass from the, the heat radiating. I mean, this was absolute proof that this thing had been in deep space in, a, in, a, in the kind, of course, that a, uh, that an asteroid would be in, for example, uh, and, and interacting Earth with that kind of velocity to heat it up. But this has more capacity than any of the meteorites that have ever been found, simply because it's translucent and transparent and is absorbing this, just, as I use the term, drinking it in as it, as it fell. Yeah. How many days did it take from the time you talked to the professors in Austin until you met Mr. Tanner? Oh, well, I, I, I immediately, I, I gave him a call, and, uh-huh. and he invited me to come over and to, to see it. Now, when I saw this, I mean, this was as soon as I could get there, because I knew this had appeared in the paper that, that Saturday morning. So I probably called him that afternoon. Yeah. After I, I got home late afternoon, mm-hmm. back to San Antonio. And, of course, he lived in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. He said, you, you can come over and see it at mine. Yeah. It's okay. But uh, the thing is that... Uh, I was concerned that it appeared in the paper, and I knew since just seeing the picture of it and talking with the professor, as he told me, it's not a meteorite. We don't know what it is. I said, to me, the intelligence community justifiably has to be interested in this, because being glass, and he said it, it, it mainly glass, but it has some copper. He, he said, you know, it's mysterious. And uh, so I can understand when the intelligence community sees the Austin American statement that Saturday morning, they say, wait a minute, we've got to, we've got to get this thing. So sure enough, anyway, I visited Tanner uh, right away and I said, look, you're, you're going to, to be contacted by the intelligence community. I'm confident. And I said, they, 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 they feel they need to have this. It may relate, be related to an ET technology since it's not a meteorite. Yeah. It could be technology. And, uh, so be cautious. You had already, by this time, uh, this is like five years after you did the Socorro investigation, so, so you knew quite a bit about these things. Yes, yes. So I cautioned, uh, he, he always went by the name T.H. I don't know what the T or the H stood for, his last name was Tanner, but uh, uh, he was just called T.H. by his wife and everybody else. And uh, uh, so I, I said, no, just be very cautious. Uh, use your discretion of what you should do. But, but they're going to want this. He said, thank you. I appreciate your learning me. Okay. The very next day, two people from government intelligence showed up at his uh, place, his air conditioning, uh, his commercial air conditioning business. And uh, I just talked to him and, and, and got him. And they, the first thing they said to him is, uh, Mr. Tanner, we did a, a background check on you before we came. And you are, uh, you are, uh, 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 we know that you're a, a, you love your country, you're a patriotic man. And, uh, what we want to tell you is that, uh, uh, your country needs this. And, uh, 
we, we want to ask you to turn it over to us. And he said, and I, I love it the way he said it. He said, look, uh, the way I got it figured, this thing fell in my backyard. If the good Lord wanted you to have it, he'd make it fall down in the middle of the Pentagon. And of course, I don't think they had too good an answer for that. <laughs> but uh, uh, I thought that was pretty pretty sharp. And uh, uh, and he said, they said, but but we, we need to, we have to take this because uh, it is important. And uh, he said, well, I'm not going to give it to you. It's, it's, it's not for sale. I'm not going to give it to you. That's it. They said, well, well, we're going we're going to get. We have to have it. And, uh, and, and we, we will, we will have to, we'll have to take this. So we're sorry you're not willing to cooperate now, but, uh, uh, but you'll be hearing about it. We have to take this. And, um, so indeed they tried. Here's what happened. I, I warned him. I said, you want to be cautious because this is probably important enough that they would be willing to break into your place of business or into your home to get this. Well, he took it home. And, uh, but I told him, I said, don't leave it there. You're going to be gone even several hours. They're likely to know you're going to be gone, maybe monitoring your telephone, but they're going to get on to try to get this. Well, what he did is uh, they had to go somewhere that day. Both he and his wife were going to be gone for several hours. He took it one bug down to where his son and her and his wife lived, and he, he, uh, he left it at their place, fortunately. Well, when they got back, were they shocked? I mean, they were really appalled. Intelligence, I don't know if it's one or two people, but it's probably two the way things were. He said every drawer of that house had been opened, and many of them had the contents of the drawers thrown out on the bed or the floor. He said they were shocked at the condition of the house. He said clearly they were looking for this and never found it. But every, he said, we, they had three color TVs, and they were brand new units. He said nothing was stolen, not the TVs, not anything. Somebody was looking for what I call the space material. I'll mention here at this point that uh, this man and his wife uh, called it our moon rock. Now, the reason they did is because if you check the, the time of this, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't this the time of the first lunar mission and landing? And it had, it had just taken off from the moon and returned to Earth. And they felt somehow that this craft in taking almost to knock this thing off, up and uh, and it fallen in their yard. <laughs> so they called it their, their moon ring. They were serious. They thought it, it might well be uh, a result of the, uh, the Apollo mission, which I'm, I'm certain it was not. They've not found any glass like this on the moon. Not only that, but there's pure copper uh, in this at places. And um, that hasn't been found either on the moon. But uh, But anyhow... That uh, at this point, you can imagine how upset he was, and uh, he decided to be hyper cautious about uh, not letting this get stolen. Well, not too long after that, uh, a a man uh, claiming to be from um, a corporation in Houston, of course, he's very near the Manned Space Flight Center, but uh, I know not, there there may or may not have been a connection. But this man claimed, and he and he he said. Uh, 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 I'm personally interested in this, and and I'd like to I'd like to buy this thing that fell from you, and uh, uh, he, he I, was this the one that offered eleven thousand dollars? Yeah, yes, um, he offered him eleven thousand dollars for this on the spot, and he said, he said I'm not selling it. 
Do you Lord, this fell in my backyard, and uh, and it's, it's not for sale. And uh, so anyway, the guy left, and um, there there um, I forget what other uh, things happened. There, there were several things happened in the state. They were very much after this. The question we have to ask ourselves: Why was it important in the first place? Even back in that early stage of the space program, I feel pretty confident that this thing, at least in its luminous phase as it entered the upper atmosphere, was seen and tracked, and they knew that it was cosmic, that it had been on its speed and its course would indicate that it was in cosmic velocity, and it probably indicated, based on things what I now know, that it was in orbit in the solar system, which I'll go into that in a minute. So let me tell you what uh, uh, what we decided, what, what, what happened subsequently. Uh, I, I said, so, so now you're, you're not, you're not interested in selling. Uh, what are you, what are you going to do with this th? And I, I, I had in my hand the piece that I showed you that is two hundred and eleven point something grams, about a half a pound. Beautiful, interesting, marvelous specimen. I mean, it, it constituted possibly, you know, twenty percent, twenty five percent of the whole specimen, maybe a little more. It's hard to say how big it was. I don't I haven't held the whole specimen. <laughs> I haven't even seen it in a long time. But uh, I said, what, what, are you, what are you going to do with this TH? And he says, I was going to give it to you. I said, well, thank you. Uh, I mean, the, the guy would probably have paid him $11,000 just for this, you know. But uh, he gave it to me. And you can't imagine how thrilled Ray Stanford was. <laughs> I mean, I was just ecstatic. Uh, to get this uh, this amazing thing, and it uh, it has places in it uh, pure copper. It's not oxidized copper. There are places where it's interacted with something, possibly when it passed through the atmosphere, where you'll see a blue green color of a copper compound, uh, but only in those kind of places. Other places, it's it's pure copper. Well, we wondered what about this? Well, uh, Cleo, uh, who I had met at uh, at a, a metaphysical study group, uh, they had learned about my psychic work at that time and uh, uh, these days of course I'm, I'm not into that and uh, uh, giving psychic readings anything like that but uh, at that time I was I said well let's see you know maybe my unconscious knows something my conscious doesn't know we by suggestion maybe we can get it to to give us some information some useful information or interesting information at least and uh, so uh, they asked just outright uh, what is this? Where did it come from? It doesn't look like a meteorite. And my source, which claimed to be the unconscious of Ray Stanford in contact with areas of information or individuals toward which it is directed by suggestion. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. I, I don't make any claims about that. But what it said was quite interesting. It claimed that this object was actually part of of what he said, it, it, it said, the, the, the voice said, I don't know that he gave identity as an individual. I think it was just my unconscious. Yes. It, it, it said, this was, this is part of what you would call a space city. It was an object that had been manufactured in space, that inside of it, that there was activity, and it was 30 miles of your miles in diameter. 30 miles in diameter, and the outside, that there had been a matrix of copper used because I guess because it was the easy electrically conductive metal available from whatever amazing source of copper they might have had, which is hard to believe. But um, it, it stated that it 
they created a magnet that they, they created a silica I, I guess <laughs> electrified silica vapor it may be a silica plasma I don't know if that's the right term but it, it claimed that this was then condensed based on the current that was apparently pumped through certain copper areas of it and this sounds like pure fiction but uh, that it it condensed and to this thick outer layer that would protect from small cosmic debris and and radiations and things like this but that it was uh, the inside of it you know well the outside of it is that it was around 30 miles in diameter so we didn't know whether it's true or not and so somebody said is there is there anything you could tell us that would that would confirm this or you know that would give us some additional evidence and my unconscious said yes it said on this date it gave a date and it said to go out it told the time to go out it's here's what it said it said when the it, here's what happened this thing it said had what it said what today we would call a computer error and it did something wrong and it disintegrated in space this whole 30 mile in diameter space city imagine the destruction the destruction of life whatever these aliens might have been and uh, how they might have looked but anyway they, it it stated that it disintegrated and is scattered over a considerable area in the solar system a huge area but there's a concentration of it in a certain area and that is in orbit around the sun and it said if you will go out at that time it will fall on the same orbit that it did when it originally fell from the east to the west you'll see it falling from the east to the west and it will be as this object was white hot with a few places that will be green because of the effect of melting and disintegration of the of the copper and um so my uh my wonderful uh future was well, at that time i think maybe we already got married i'm not sure but uh, future mother-in-law cleo uh she said gee let's go so when the day came she and susan my uh, wife to be or wife we went out the, the, just the three of us and uh, out where it was really dark outside of san antonio and so help me god at the exact time that we were given we, we were given approximate time so he said it's, it's very you know, it's orbit and so on and so forth. We can't say exactly to the second when this will happen, but it, it will happen at this time. And we're standing out there waiting, and it happened. And this this was not any already little bright meteor you see stick to the sky. Oh, no. This thing was larger than the full moon, which covers a half degree of arc approximately in the sky when you see the full moon in the sky. Uh, and uh, But this looked larger than that, maybe because it was so bright. It was pure white, with spots of green copper burning at places. And it was hypersonic. It was moving like a bat out of hell and came right across from the east exactly as it had, except it didn't fall there, unfortunately, in San Antonio where we were. It, it went right over us heading west. I wish I knew where it fell out there. I wish I had the coordinates and we could you know, do a calculation and go out and find it even to this day, possibly, if it fell in the wilderness. But uh, uh, anyhow... We took that as absolute confirmation that this thing, that at least the source is right about this thing being in orbit, because it had to be, because you don't go out and see, uh, I mean, uh, the, the exact coordinate was given, uh, the, the trajectory, the appearance of it. 
all of it was was given us in a reading. Well, that's another example of uh, your unconscious mind being 100% accurate. Well, that's right. I don't know if it's 100%, but it was pretty accurate. We were happy with the accuracy. With regard to the time and date. Right. That's right. That, that, that was right on. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And we didn't have long to wait. I mean, we were delighted and thrilled. By the way, uh, mentioning this, that I wish I knew where this had fallen. Well, I found out that more of it had fallen in San Antonio. Now, this is a thing. Uh, maybe this was unconscious sigh, maybe unconscious ESP to be at the right time at the right place, as I often am. But I happened to have some occasion to go into a convenience uh, store, I think it was a 7-Eleven possibly, in somewhere there in San Antonio. And I was walking back to try to find out what I came after. And here came a man, by the way, I didn't mention that Tanner was African-American descent, and he had rather dark skin. Well, here came a man down the aisle, a nice-looking man. That, he was pretty tall. I think he was probably just over six feet or thereabout, uh, and I'm, I'm shorter than that considerably. And um, he came down the aisle, but what got to me was not the man. He had a gold chain around his neck, and at the end of that gold chain on his chest was a piece of the space material, exactly you know, like the stuff that I had. I knew it had to be. Man, you probably my eyes were as big as... There's a ball of fire at that time, man. And I uh, and I said, "Pardon me, sir," but I, I said, uh, uh, "I have a question. That I, I, I am I have a scientific interest. It, 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 uh, uh, that object on this chain." I, I said, uh, uh, "Where did you get that?" He said, "We well, may not believe me, but it fell out of the sky." I said, "Did it fall out of the sky on July 28th?" And he said, yes, sir, it did. How do you know? And I said, because I'm studying another case where it fell in southeastern San Antonio. And uh, that was the date it fell. He said, that's exactly when it fell. And it fell in my yard. And he, he, he said, uh, so I felt it was mine. I guess like uh, Tanner had felt that was his and wasn't going to give it up easily. And uh, and he said, uh, I, I feel it's very important. He said, I don't know what it is, but it's very important. I don't know if he thought of it as a moon rock as as, as they did. But uh, now to the the rest of the sad story. Well, wait, before we move forward, uh, or maybe you were going to go there next, Tanner did have another episode of of the rock being stolen. Yes, yeah, this is what happened. Uh, They they decided to go to Lake Tahoe on vacation. And um, so he said, well, look, we we obviously, this is going to try to steal this, so let's hide it. Well, instead of taking it down to his... uh, his son's house down a block down. They just thought, he said, well, look, nobody's going to find it. They, uh, they went to the dirtiest place they could put it, alone run the, 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 near the kitchen where the cabinets were, and uh, they was all kind of junk, the polished down just the upper level of the cabinet when you open it up, right on the floor. You're assuming you're right on the floor. It's stuff, and not, you don't put dishes, clean dishes, you're going to use anything like that there. So they, he pulled all the stuff out and put it against the wall at the back, as far back as you could in there, and then put all this junk in front of it. It's going to be safe there. So they went to Lake Tahoe. They were gone. I remember it was at least a week. I don't know how long total, total they were gone. It wasn't too much longer than that, I don't think. When they came back, they didn't happen to think they'd had a nice vacation. At first, they didn't think about where is the moon rock, as they called it. But then when his wife loved to play the piano, but she loved to play the piano, he had bought a stand for it. The, the space material, their moon rock, 
had been when she played, she loved to have it on the piano. And she felt it was the gift from God, so to speak, a moon rock. And, but anyway, it was sacred to her. And uh, so uh, that's where she kept it. So she said, T.A., go, 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 go get the, the moon rock. He said, I want to put it back on, on the piano. And uh, he said, okay. So he went back and, oh my, it was gone. And it's never been found since. Now, someone in the interim had come and, and tried to buy it from him too. And uh, he had just told me, he says, he said, well, you know, I, I got, I got tired of uh, this stuff. People are interested in it. I, I just got tired of it. Maybe it's bad luck, but I, I threw, I threw it in the San Antonio River. If you want to find it, go down there. But I, I had a feeling the guy didn't, didn't take him seriously, but, uh, because they, they came back and, and stole it. And this was definitely, intelligence community this was not john doe after all this weeks and months that had appeared in the austin uh, uh paper and they're in san antonio no this and this didn't even appear anything about it in the san antonio paper at all never appeared even though it fell in san antonio which that's why you had to go to austin huh you had to go to austin to learn about it yeah that's right i had to go to austin on this hunch that i had to talk to dr eugene vasiliaga a physicist and I, I had no idea. In life, I often act on hunches because I know my great, my, my grandmother, we call her Big Mama, uh, Neely, uh, I think her real name is Cornelia. Uh, I, I, she was incredibly psychic. And uh, she wasn't a psychic in the sense of giving readings or anything like that. She certainly didn't claim she was communicating with spirits. My dear grandmother, what happened is, and this happened several times, for example, one time she and her daughter were in Corpus Christi where she then, in her later years, she lived with her daughter, Esther, and, and her husband, Arthur. And uh, and they were at the kitchen sink washing and drying dishes. And all of a sudden, my grandmother said to Esther, she, he said, uh, she said, Oh, Esther, uh, Uncle What's-His-Name has just died. And Esther said, Well, he's not even safe. She says, I know but he just died. He said, Mama, how do you know? And she said, because his spirit in the form of a white dove came and lit on my left shoulder and said, Neely, I want to tell you goodbye. That <laughs> made me sad when I think about it. I mean, this could happen. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's mind-boggling. But she knew it was, I mean, she said, it said, this dove said, Neely, I just want you to know I'm gone. And then he told him who he was. And um, and the thing was, this had also happened at least one other time with Aunt Esther, with her mother doing this. And so she knew the moment that Big Mama said that Uncle such and such is gone, that he was gone. And uh, But so it was easy for me to accept psychic phenomena. And there's one other story that, but I think I've already told this in the interview. Did I? No, I didn't tell in an interview about... Uh, the little boy. No, you didn't. Well, shall I tell it? Yeah. Okay. Here's the story. And this is sad. Now, I moved away from Odom. We moved away from Odom when I was nine years old. This was either before I was born or when I was so young, I can't remember this little boy. But they were uh, back uh, about a block and a half walking distance from the, the great. These, these were dirt streets. They they hadn't paved them yet when we lived in Odom. And uh, uh, But down one and a half blocks down dirt street, were some people in the name of Lowe, L-O-W-E, and they had, as my mother said, the cutest little boy 
who had just uh, entered the first grade or maybe the preschool, if they had that note, but I think it was the first grade. And uh, they had in the first grade a thing they called the rhythm band. And they had cute little uniforms for the kids that were in the rhythm band. And anyway, he showed up over at my parents' house and uh, with this cute little outfit on for the rhythm band. And he, he said, uh, Miss Tempert, I just wanted you to see, I'm so proud I'm in the rhythm band and this is the rhythm band uniform. And she said, oh, that is really sweet. Uh, and he said, he said, but Miss Tempert, he said, I want you to make sure that I am buried in this. Huh? Huh? You, he said, yes, I want you to make sure I, I must be buried in this. Here is a, a child six years old. And he says, I want to be buried in my, in this uniform. And then I'll start crying. I talk about this. The next day, somebody, I think it was his father, took him out on a hunting trip in the woods. And somehow, by some incredible accident, uh, he was shot and killed. And my mother heard about it and told him, said, he said he must be. And they buried him in that uniform. It just, anyway... If you if you don't as a child when you hear a story like that if you don't believe in psychic phenomena before that you believe in it because you know your mother told the truth and that she wouldn't make up a story ever and um, so that that has stuck with me uh, I, I mean even this imagine this unconscious I mean I'd have to call it unconscious and yet it's like he it was unconscious and yet he knew he was going to die at the age and size that this little outfit would would fit him. But I think people ought to know about that because sometimes when ch children make statements that seem irrational, maybe we should pay more attention than we do. Certainly, somebody should have paid close attention to that. But my mother had no idea. I, I mean, he definitely was being psychic, consciously or unconsciously. Now, speaking of unconscious psychic, uh, and, and I think this might be related to the concept that your twin brother came up with the psi mediated instrumental response. Yeah. Um, the story you told me yesterday about when you were in Peru trying to get back and you couldn't buy an airplane ticket or. Oh my gosh, yes. Oh my gosh, yeah. If it hadn't been for this, I wouldn't be talking to you. I wouldn't be alive. I would have died in 1957 in February of 57 in Peru. Here's what happened. Um, I had naively, you know, just out of high school, naively I was following a, a really Coopsville. Uh, this was the the channeling, so-called, of a guy that claimed to be psychic. And he, he showed up in the UFO field. Uh, his name was George Hunt Williamson, known to his friends as Rick Williamson. But he was doing voice channeling, and I was had been receiving transcriptions of it. And they decided that they had instruction from the spiritual world to uh, uh, to start a commune in Peru, a spiritual commune, a spiritual renunciates. We weren't going to be monks, but we decided, my brother and I decided to to join this this commune. And uh, how we even, I, I can't even remember how we got the money to be able to plane fly down there. But this reminds me the things that happened uh, a night or two before in Corpus Christi, remember the man in black in front of the doors of the uh, the lecture I was about to give? 
No, I don't. Uh, okay, and then I'll, then get me back to okay. uh, in Peru. But uh, a few days before we went, we were scheduled to go to Peru, and we we had our tickets and everything was set up, and uh, we were going to have a lecture on our, our our belief in the UFO. Oh yeah, now I remember. Yes, and so John McCoy and Rex and I showed up. We were going to we had a room at the at the uh, New Oasis Hotel in downtown Corpus Christi. And it had been advertised in the paper and probably on the radio. And uh, so we had to unlock the doors and get set up for the, the lecture. And But when we got there, here was an awful-looking man leaning against the doors. He, he was about six feet tall and uh, slightly balding on top. But he was wearing, he was dressed in black, black tie, black suit, black pants, black shoes. He was a man in black, so to speak. And... Uh, uh, He's leaning against the doors, and uh, I said, pardon me, but we've got to get in there to get set up for the lecture. So he moved over begrudgingly, and uh, he was leaning against the doors, literally like he owned the place. And uh, so he went in and sat down in the middle seat on the front row. And um, anyway, after we'd gotten into the lecture... you John, Were you giving the lecture? Well, I and John was talking, probably right, we were talking about the, the group experience in our, our knowledge and what we felt about UFOs. Yeah, and so uh, he popped up out of his seat, and he said, uh, "There's something more important than than talking about this nonsense." He said, "I want you to tell these people why you're leaving for next week, why you're going, and how you got the money to go." Huh? How you got the money to go? Well, I, I don't remember that now after all these years. I can't imagine how we got the money to go because our parents were pretty poor. We, my, my father had had been unable to work for several years because of tuberculosis, and uh, and he had he relapsed when we moved from Odom. He'd gotten over it, but he relapsed in Corpus Christi and was having trouble. They, the the first surgery they did something to one lung collapsed or something had left a sponge that had gotten infected inside his inner cavity, and bless his heart, he suffered a lot. But uh, anyway. We, because he was not, my mother took a job just sewing, working at a laundry, doing something, sewing damaged clothes or something, very little income. How, we did not have the money to send us to Peru, so I don't know how we got there, but we did. But how you got the money to go, I couldn't have even answered that probably then. No, I knew then, but I, I, I couldn't answer it now is what I mean to say. And, uh, but anyway, I, I said, I want you to quiet down. I'm going to give this talk. You are not the subject of this talk. And you had better hush up, or I'll have John go out and call the police. So anyway, he quieted down, and um, that was it. But when we um, when we took our, our plane uh, from uh, Corpus Christi, our, our first flight took us to somewhere in Florida. Oddly enough, going that far east to go to Peru, but uh, then our flight in Florida took us to. It landed in Panama City and changed plans, and then we flew on down to Lima, Peru, from there. And uh, the thing was, when we went to get on the plane, there was a man in black. It wasn't the same man in black, but he was dressed in a black suit, and he had this demeanor that's hard to explain. It just, oh gosh, uh, not good. And uh, and uh, he came and he 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 sat down on the aisle. I think it was, it was it was either right behind. I think it was right in front of us, so he could hear us talking and anything we said. If I remember correctly, I think it was the middle seat and they all right in front of us. But his man in black, and uh, 
when we when we landed in Lima, we went to a hotel we'd already been arranged because other people that were going to join the commune, which was across in eastern Peru, were staying at that hotel until time to to go over there, and uh, uh, the uh, uh, so we knew what hotel we were going to. But when we got there, guess who was checking in right in front of us? The man in black that had been trained flight every flight that we went on, that had been our flights, was there checking in. And he checked into the room uh, as he would face our door. It was the room right to the to the right there. And um, so uh, whether he was FBI or National Security Agency or CIA, I don't know, but he was a man in black. Mm-hmm. And um, here's the amazing thing. And he's right in that room adjacent to us as if anything in the room he wants to hear. He go, well, one morning um, uh, down the side, we want to go down and, and uh, have some breakfast. So we... We punched the elevator bell. We were on an upper floor. And uh, the door of the elevator opened. You would never, well, you would. I told you the story. But no one would ever guess who was standing face to face with us. Not the man in black. Oh, no. The standing in front of us, and we recognized him immediately from TV, was Raul Castro, the brother of Fidel Castro, the head of the communist regime in Cuba, Cuba, as they would say. We recognized him immediately. And uh, so John said in his body, uh, Hola, Raul, como esta? And he says, Oh, he says, uh, and he says I'm, I'm here to, uh, to uh, he said, Don't you know that it's the prison across the street? I said, no, we didn't know. He said, I'm here to talk to everybody that's going to be getting out of the prison anytime soon, talking them into come fight in La Revolución. So here we were with this FBI, CIA, or NSA agent checked into the room next to us, and we meet face-to-face in the elevator in the hotel where we were staying. He was staying, Raul Castro. I mean, (laughs) it's too much for the mind, but it's one of these crazy things that happens to Ray Stanford. (laughs) And uh, I mean, it, it. I mean, it was almost too much for us to believe. But there's no question; it really was Raúl Castro. But the craziest part comes next. We went to the commune. We got to the commune, and by the way, we had a the. Uh, it was it was a town. There was no electricity. There was no running water in this little town. Now it's quite a city, but it was a town called Muyabamba. No paved streets even, and uh, but this is where our commune was, and. Uh, uh, the uh, and I won't go into the various things that happened about that. Uh, even the, the mayor of this little town got upset when well he wanted to uh, he wanted us to come to a, a thing for the celebration for those gringos we gringos uh, and strangers uh, you know at his place and uh, we knew we didn't believe in drinking and we knew being in there that they'd have chicha at least fermented. Uh, yucca root, uh, or something that they would want us to drink as well as the food. We didn't eat meat, and we knew it was going to be everything. So I didn't go, and, and John didn't go, and Rick didn't go, but the rest of the whole commune uh, went. And uh, and Darren, he chased us onto the airplane. We decided we had to leave. We heard he was after us, and he literally chased us. They wouldn't let him on the plane, but he t- he was going to get us and going to do something to us. I don't know what, because we had insulted the mayor of the town. And uh, but fortunately they wouldn't let him on the plane, so we took off and we went to Lima, and and somehow uh, managed to call 
my mother and she bless her heart my grandmother was able to pay for her to have tickets to come home i can remember that part and uh, uh, uh so we got the ticket we, well we didn't get the tickets we went to the uh, once we had received the money by wire or however we got it to pay for the tickets uh you didn't have electronic credit cards at that point uh, we, once we had the money to get the tickets we went to the uh airline office downtown in lima and i said look uh uh and I need tickets and he said sure no problem he wrote out the tickets these were all handwritten carbon copies and all that kind of stuff back in those days so he, this is what he did he wrote them out and I pulled out the money we had knew, already knew how much it was and his eyes glazed his eyes actually glazed and he looked at me and he said I'm sorry I cannot sell you these tickets. And he reached down the ticket he had just the tickets he had just written it out and ripped them to shreds and dropped them in the trash can. And I said, "Are you crazy?" He said, "I'm sorry. I cannot sell you these tickets." And so we got angry and we left there and we went out to the airport. And we said, we told the guy there, we said, "This is crazy downtown the guy he said that he said that doesn't make sense there's place on that there's space on that flight he said i'll i'll give you the tickets so he made out the tickets wrote out the tickets and when i handed him the money his eyes glazed and you know what happened he said i'm sorry i cannot sell you these tickets and he dropped them in the trash can oh my god what is going on we obviously could not then fly back but no the, both the guys had torn up the tickets as it happened the flight was for the next morning it crashed into the andes and all aboard were killed all aboard were killed and i would not be here and i had those tickets in head but what bothers me is in the positive way is what was acting on these two guys these ticket agents to tell us they would make out the tickets then their eyes glaze and tear them up i mean this reads like z grade science fiction or fantasy it do- this doesn't seem like reality but it happened and i wouldn't be talking to you now at age 84 if this hadn't happened that was a strange story but true but true absolutely well would it be okay ray if you do you have the energy to tell uh, while we're on the topic of strange stories your encounter with uri geller oh boy <laughs> that's a long story a whole lot of things i had two ben files from from uri geller that that ben and and lay on the, the table bending without him touching him we all a group saw it so both these these were not ordinary utensils they were extra heavy as you saw very thick uh stainless steel not silver uh and um, these were just some tokens of his visit but uh, let me tell you the the wild parts he was visiting you where you live he was visiting uh, in austin and then we're going over to houston we were sponsoring a show in houston going into houston uh as we approached uh, uh, an uh, an overpass we just passed under over when this happened that I'm going to describe it was it was raining it had been an awful looking thing from a distance uh, there there was just a, a small relatively small layer of dark cloud and uh, 
I think they came down and looked like how you want to interpret it. It could look, you consider it awfully phallic looking, but whatever it was, there was a lot of rain coming out of the end of this whole pattern of cloud that was coming down right over the overpass. This is just after you had been yeah. with Uri? We're, we're, we're going to Houston to, to set up, to rearrange something. Geller's not with us. He's not with you at It's just my wife and me. You're involved in setting up. Yeah, that is correct. Anyway, I got involved with a terrible uh, accident. Yeah. The accident occurred. But then the, the, the troubling part, but it was the good part because otherwise the way the car was hit, the cars were coming in behind us in the rain would have hit us and probably would have killed us. And what happened is our car, so help me God, teleported 90 feet up the highway in front of the people involved in the wreck where we had the wreck. And in front, 90 feet up there, you did show me a picture of the car with a big dent in it. And so the highway patrol comes along and gives me a ticket to failure to control speed to avoid an accident. And I have to appear in court. And uh, so I did appear in court. And the, the very sweet lady and uh, her two sons showed up in court that uh, she had been driving the car that was involved in the accident that, that I had or that turned around somehow. I don't know how this happened. But... Uh, but anyway, she was the one who was driving that car. And they had her there. I mean, they considered this pretty serious because, I guess, because of the nature of the accident. I mean, several cars were involved. And uh, I, they had her there, I guess, because uh, normally I don't think you have a press prosecuting attorney for failure to control speed to avoid an accident. But there was a guy there that was not the judge, and he was acting against us. Maybe it was, I don't know if it was the police officers involved that gave the ticket or who it was. He says... Uh, I want you to tell us how this accident occurred. What happened with Mr. Stanford's car? And she said, well, we, we heard him skidding up behind us somewhere. It was heavy rain, hard to see what's going on. But he, we heard the car skidding up and crash. It was he in front of your car, behind your car at this point. He said, well, he was in front of our car, but he was too far in front of our car. He was 90 feet up the highway. And she, he said, wait a minute. 90 feet up the highway, are you saying that he spun around maybe around the group of where the wreck occurred and, and maybe over by the railing off the side of the interstate, it was an interstate, and uh, spun around to 90 feet? She said, no, sir, he didn't. Well, what are you alleging, that his car was in the accident and it flew over you? And she said, no, sir. He said, what are you saying? He said, well, here's my, my sons are here. They can tell you the same thing. His car, when it hit us, it vanished like you turned a light off and it appeared 90 feet up the road. Of course, this kept us from being hit by other cars. And actually, you see, it was protective, apparently. And this officer, or whoever it was, said, Mrs. Waterman, says, are you saying that his car was there, and then it appeared, and it didn't fly over you or around you, or skid around you? She said, no, sir, he didn't do any of those things. He was there, and then he was suddenly 90 feet up the wall. And he turned to the judge, he said, Your Honor, if the if the, the if the court's only witness against the uh, offender uh, can only tell something that is totally impossible and ridiculous, I have to move that this case be dismissed. And he said, "Case dismissed." And so we got free of that. But that wasn't the end of the teleportation story. Uh, so it went on. Eventually, we got it set up, and we had the the fair in Houston, and uh, we were. Uh, 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 ready to head back to to uh to Austin from Houston, which is a pretty good long drive. But we stopped off 
at my my one of my uh, older brothers uh, the, they were actually cousins but they had been adopted sort of as as brothers and brought up with us uh Gene Stanford his wife Dorothy we went by their house to 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 say hello and uh, tell them that uh, that we were uh, just getting ready to head back to Austin and so we were there and we knew exactly what time we looked at the time I called from there I called and told my office I said we're leaving here such and such so we should be here at such and such time and uh, uh, but we're leaving Jean Dorothy's now. And uh, so then we went on the Beltway around town and then got onto the interstate that goes west toward Austin. And we're driving along, just thinking, okay, it'll be nice to get home after all this tiring trip. And uh, suddenly my wife, uh, this is not Susan, this is my wife, uh, Kitty Bo, right? Kitty Bo. Yeah, that was her nickname. Everybody called her that. I never called her by her real name. She's just Kitty Bo. And and we're driving along, and and she says, in a kind of troubled voice, she said, Ray. I said, yes, there's something wrong. She said, look at the car. I said, oh, oh my gosh, it, 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 you're talking about it's glowing. And she said, yes, it's glowing. And it was glowing. The car was glowing. We were not glowing, but the car was glowing. She said, do you know what's going to happen? And I said, yes, we're going to teleport. And at that point, we were gone. And at that point, we were 37. We knew exactly where we were because we just passed the, the outer the area of Beltway, what do you call it? They're around Houston. We knew exactly where we were. We were 37 miles up the road. We appeared on the highway just like that. And, and, we both knew, no question, we had been teleported. We didn't realize how far we'd been teleported at that point until we checked the map, until we found it where we went and then checked the map. And, uh, but anyway, the thing is, we got into Austin and to the office vastly faster, about 37 minutes faster, if you're going 60 miles an hour, than we should have. I mean, we had told him what we called him, and we knew where we left Gene and Dorothy. We knew how long it was, how long it should take. And so we had that, we had that uh, that evidence that uh, absolutely uh, we had we had covered thirty seven miles or thirty nine miles whichever it was uh, you know, by teleportation. There was a weird clicking sound, and we wanted him to find out what was wrong with it. Check the electrical system. Somehow we couldn't imagine what was making this make this clicking sound. I can't even describe the clicking sound. I don't remember how it sounded. You said it was a clicking sound, but uh, the, so that's why we took it in. But when they got in and they found out that a bunch of the wires literally were nearly charred, that they looked like they had been massive amperage connected to them. And that, I asked, he said, what in the world did you connect to this car? Uh, what, what is this left condition of this system? It, it can't, uh, there's not that kind of amperage in a car. It can't do that to the electrical system. But this happened, so I have to know. I, I, I'm not going to let you go. <laughs> you know, I have to know. And so... I said, you're not going to believe what I, I'm going to tell you. Well, let me ask you this. The experience with the airplane tickets saved your life. The right. experience of the car teleporting 90 feet may have, saved sa your may have saved your life. But what would have been the purpose of teleporting the car 37 miles and burning out the electrical system? Well, it's like a guy saying, showing his muscles and saying, See how strong I am, what I can do? It's just a little friendly notification that uh, you haven't seen anything yet. 
That's my interpretation of it. But who who would have been sending that message? Well, at the time we would have said it was uh, together. He called Spectre. Did he use the term Hoover too, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, he used the term Hoover. I may have talked to him. Maybe it was Hoover, but uh, I don't remember all that. Uh, Oh, I will tell you an interesting thing, though, in this connected, I think people will find fascinating. At that time, traveling with Gore, everywhere he went, was a young man named Shippy Strong. His cousin. And I didn't know he was his cousin, yeah. but he was uh, Shippy Strong. Uh-huh. And he seemed like a nice guy. He's still with but her, Geller, right? Geller, really. Well, he said he, that he was his psychic battery. He says he goes below, he gives energy. So, But anyway, before it was time for him to leave Austin and go back wherever they were going, he said, Ray, he said, you've got to quit your work here and go to work for me. I'll pay you big time. He said, Shippy is my psychic battery, but he said, he has no amperage compared to you. <laughs> he says, my God, he said, man, if I could have you at my shows, all kinds of things, it would boggle the mind of the entire world. And I said, that might be nice, but Uri, I have my own work here uh, and about my psychic work and my UFO work. And I, I feel I've got to be here. I can't do it. He said, you got to work. This, this will, this will, this will show the world. That it's not. I said, look, Show them at the level that, that, that the power that, that, that Shippy can provide. I said, I, I just can't because my work is too important to me. And he was really disappointed. He wasn't hatefully disappointed, but he was very disappointed. And as far as you're concerned, it would seem as if the psychokinetic effects, the bending of the forks, the teleportation we didn't talk about on camera yet, right. the, the apport or teleporting of your meteor. Uh, yes, meteorite. Meteorite. Yeah. And uh, he's holding it in his hand right now and showing it on the camera. Show him the other side of it, too. There we go. There's the ablation side where you see more the effects of ablation as it passed through the atmosphere originally. What happened with this? It had just been, uh, uh, I think he saw the meteorite on display and asked, what is this? And I explained it's the canon of a meteorite. But uh, he wasn't sitting anywhere near it. And Shippy wasn't either. I mean, it had been in, in the back bedrooms where it was. And we were sitting in the living room. And uh, it was it had been in the back bedroom. I'd been in there. And um, all of a sudden, over the kitchen area, near the dining table, I could see from the living room where I was sitting on the couch, into the, the ceiling up there. That meteorite, as you can see, is quite heavy. If it fell on your toe, you wouldn't have a toe, probably, after that. But uh, uh, it just appeared up at the ceiling. just And, and long enough that you could see it, it wasn't, a glimpse. I mean, it was there, and then it fell, but it didn't fall at at, at G one speed. It, it 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 fell. It looked like it was almost going kind of slow, too slow, and it went down and hit the floor. Now it was an asphalt tile floor, and it dropped from there. You saw the sharp edges and how hard it is. It would at least have chipped and dented the asphalt tile. There was no damage because it was not moving at that speed. It fell in slowly. So here we had a demonstration and a slow fall demonstration to boot. But we all saw it. Everybody sitting in the room saw that happen. And it, it can't be doubted. And I don't know why science has to be so hard-headed, some scientists, that they can't at least investigate this and find out that there are, there are powers, energies, or whatever that are beyond what they've considered in their physics labs. And then Uri said to you to check the weight. Oh, yeah. He said, often things lose mass. And it lost, I believe, 10.3% of its weight, or 4.88 ounces, which is a quarter of a pound. 
anyway, it definitely lost mass, and yet it, it kept its form. It looked the same. So that's a pretty good trick in itself, to make a nickel-iron meteorite lose that much mass and not change its apparent form. Apparent form. So I suppose it would be fair to say in your own psychic work, we've seen that some of your readings, for sure, uh, of a precognitive nature were spot on. But Thorey Geller, you have what would be considered psychokinetic phenomena right. occurring that were not necessarily uh, part of your own normal experiences. And yet he felt that my energies would, would feel and, and yeah. power his displays. And um, so there, I don't know if there's some relationship or what, I have no idea. But the, the point I want to emphasize, because so many people, every time I bring up Uri Geller, they tend to say, and I knew Uri quite well, I sponsored his first public appearance in the United States. Oh, really? Yeah, at Berkeley. Uh, first major public appearance back in 1972. But when I bring Uri up, uh, I always hear from viewers who say, he's an obvious fraud because he was on Johnny Carson and he couldn't perform. Oh, boy. Well, I've got news for them. Uh, Sometimes cars run out of gas <laughs> so, um, and have to get revealed. But as far as you're concerned, he's quite legitimate. There is no question. I can swear my life. that is, I mean, When you've been teleported twice, I mean, that really upsets me that people will say he's a that he's a phony. I had him on the radio in California and dozens of people start calling in about things happening in in their own homes. And that was unique to Geller. That's why they were called mini Gellers. So things were bending supposedly in people's homes. Oh, yes. It's not as strange or unusual as people might think. Ray, thank you so much for sharing these amazing but, but true stories. Uh, I think it's a reflection that a person of your scientific integrity and uh, enormous curiosity is, is able to experience things both from an, an open-mindedness to things that are of such high strangeness that most people will say couldn't happen. It's unbelievable. It's impossible. And, and yet you're asking, what can we learn from this? So yes. Thank you so much. Thank my, my pleasure. I'm so I appreciate you inviting me because I feel people these can act as a, as a, a catalyst to get things moving in into new thought. We'll, we'll say. I mean, you seem to be an attractor for events of this sort. It's true, I admit it. <laughs> but but it seems to be what we're dealing with is ultimately a potential available to most people. Well, yes, I think all of us have. These potentials inside of us, uh, and of course, just like the unfortunate little boy who said, bury me in my little outfit, it's there. It's there sleeping in many cases, and, and some people it never wakes up or they never wake up to it. But others are awakened. But I hope that this acts as a catalyst to awaken people and to allow more of the fullness of the universe to become a part of their experience. I hope so too, Ray. Thank you once again for being with me. My pleasure. Thank you. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm.